Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Daniel Larison, as we navigate the shoals of the shark-infested waters of the Beltway. We have spent the last year talking about Ukraine and Taiwan and China in ways that the mainstream media is afraid to do, and we endeavor to keep bringing you fresh conversation without spin or partisanship on the most important issues of the day. In the next segment, we will be talking to columnist Bonnie Christian about the current debates in Washington and the potential candidacy of Ron DeSantis. But first, let's tackle some headlines. The White House dispatched top White House officials last weekend on the Sunday talk shows, including Secretary, not Secretary of State Blinken, but National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and CIA Director Bill Burns to talk about China and Taiwan. Republican House Foreign Affairs Chair Mike McCall also weighed in. The messaging goal seemed to be this. How to suggest China is siding with Russia and giving Russia weapons without directly accusing China of giving Russia weapons. Also, China issued a pretty anodyne set of measures packaged as a peace plan for Ukraine last week, with our top officials talking about China siding with Russia's military It seems to be undercutting Beijing's attempt to be a peacemaker here. So let's just consider this. Sullivan said on CNN's State of the Union that Washington will will continue to send a, quote, strong message to Beijing against giving military aid to Moscow when they are using their weapons to bombard cities, kill civilians and commit atrocities, end quote. Meanwhile, Bill Burns said on CBS News based the nation that there is U.S. intelligence suggesting China is considering giving Russia lethal military equipment, confirming previous news reports, including by The Washington Post. But then he added, we don't see that a final decision has been made yet, and we don't see evidence of actual shipments of lethal equipment. Meanwhile, uh, Representative Michael McCall, he's a Republican from Texas and chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said Sunday during his appearance on ABC News this week that intelligence reports suggested China may be considering sending 100 drones to Russia and said such discussions are, quote, very disturbing because they, quote, while it may be Ukraine today, it's going to be tai- Taiwan tomorrow, uh, closing that apparent circle. So, What's going on here, Dan? Do you think China is helping Russia? Do you think they are serious about a peace plan? Or are we just willing to kill any effort to end this war if it's not coming from a country that we like? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. So it it seems to me that it's very, it's strange to me that they make a point of bringing this up in public. If they're sending a strong message to China not to send lethal aid, that's fine as far as it goes. But why does it need to be done in public? Because, and I think Bob Wright made a point of this in his newsletter uh, last week, if you don't want another government to do something like this, you don't call them out publicly, because then if they comply, they appear to be doing your bidding. And so, if you don't want them to send any lethal aid, and, and I, I agree with the position that you, don't, you, you should discourage them from doing that, because having more states sending weapons into the war is obviously bad for everyone. Uh, but if, if that's the goal, then why bring it up? Why, why make it a public issue, uh, especially when you then say in the next breath, we don't have evidence that they're doing it, they're just considering it. Well, what does considering it mean? They're debating policy options? Well, we debate policy options all the time. It doesn't mean that some of them are going to happen. So it, 
it, it seems like they're, they're they're a bit confused. They they want to to sound tough on China, uh, and 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 sort of take a stand, saying we won't tolerate this if you send weapons. Uh, but it seems like the the signaling isn't really meant for China. It must be meant for somebody else uh, to to reassure allies in Europe or to reassure the Ukrainians that they're taking this seriously. But if it ends up backfiring on them, it doesn't it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The the other thing that I would say is that if you want to drive a wedge between Russia and China, uh, as one might think we'd want to do under the circumstances, since China is the the most powerful potential partner for Russia, has been uh, one of its main economic supports over the last year, uh, you you would be modifying your approach to China in other areas as well. You wouldn't be antagonizing them all the time on other issues, uh, in effect driving them closer to the Russians, as we have done for decades now. Uh, you, you would be looking for ways to split them apart. And and so I don't I don't see any of that in what the Biden administration has been doing. I'm not sure what they hope to accomplish with this messaging, except to to I guess shore up their credentials as being hawkish on China, which nobody doubted. Right? Their, their their hawkish credentials are already secure. And if they're if they're worried about that, then they're they're worried about the wrong thing. I, I totally agree. And my my thought was how convenient it is or how coincidental it might be that the top officials from the White House, meaning the CIA director Bill Burns and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, are fanning about these talk shows, talking about how China might be considering giving lethal aid to Ukraine when it is within the 48 hours that China has issued this peace plan. Now, I'm not saying that China's peace plan was all that. I mean, when you read about, when you read it, it's a set of talking points and there are no specifics in it. And it seems more geared to a global audience to say, Hey, we're a player. Uh, we, are, we are willing to go over the heads of, you know, the, the, the Western world. Uh, and talk directly to the international community about what might need to happen to end the war and bring peace to this region. And it's set with a bunch of things like respecting uh, territorial sovereignty, ending human rights abuses, um, things like that, but nothing specific about territorial concessions, for example, or how, how it even get to a ceasefire that they're, they're promoting. So it's, it wasn't the, the actual news of the peace plan. It was the fact that the Biden administration seemed bent on, on, on walking all over it to give the message to, I don't know what audience. Was it the domestic political audience? Uh, was it the general Western audience that China can't be trusted because they, they have already, we, we already consider them a co-belligerent with Russia, and to the extent they're even helping fuel the war uh, with with weapons. So why would we even listen to any peace plan or any entreaty in that um, in that regard? So I, I, I'm wondering what you think. Do they do they just kind of want uh, to step over any any idea that China could be a moderating 
play a moderating role here? Uh, because because that would 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 step all over their plans to um, contain China, confront China, you know, see China as an adversary on that other front. I, yeah, I mean, they could be that. I mean, I think they they do want to. I mean, I think some Western governments have suggested since that proposal was made that China is trying to have it both ways. They they want to provide some support to the Russians, but but withhold just enough support that they're not completely uh, uh, bound up with the Russian war effort in, in the way that they, they could have been. Uh, but I, I think this, this is a, it, it's a missed opportunity because the Chinese government has so far refrained from providing the Russians with the kinds of assistance that a real ally might provide. And last year, just before the invasion, the Russians and the Chinese made a big uh, to-do about their no-limits partnership, as they called it. Uh, and then very quickly, the limits reasserted themselves because the Chinese realized that they didn't want to be on the hook for whatever crazy thing the Russian government did. And and that kind of control, self-control on their part, ought to have some kind of positive consequences for the way that we deal with them as a way to encourage them to stick to that line, because you you want to encourage them to stick to that line, even if it involves maybe you know sort of ignoring the the extent of economic support that they are providing, acknowledge that they're not providing military support, and 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 praise that. I'd right? say that this is this is evidence of Russia's isolation. It's evidence that Russia doesn't have any real allies. Yeah. Uh, you you can you can propagandize it all you like if you want, but but don't don't try to corner the Chinese and say that you that they are somehow being underhanded about all of it, and you, you're you're just waiting for them to screw up so that you have another talking point against them. I, I don't see how that actually helps war effort in Ukraine. I don't either. I don't either. If anything, it might push China to actually give those weapons <laughs> that they're considering. I mean, I, I'm with you, Dan. I find it kind of strange that the administration would make such a uh, public play over this uh, to announce that China is considering that they have intelligence that China is thinking about giving aid. I mean, and, and, and then warning them against it. I mean, at this point, China might just say, fine, we're just going to do it. I mean, we can't win anyway. So... I don't know. I find that everything that comes out of the mouth of the administration these days is is designed, whether consciously or not, to provoke China into doing the opposite of what we want them to do. And I just and, and add this right to it. I just I find um, that the rhetoric, uh, the Biden administration goes out there and makes a big deal during his State of the Union address that he doesn't want he doesn't want to provoke a war with China and that there are many areas in which both countries can cooperate. And then like two minutes later, his administration is out there making speeches, making uh, remarks to reporters um, that, like I said, are designed to have the opposite effect that seem uh, provocative, escalatory, you know, Biden, I mean, um, Anthony Blinken met with his, uh, Chinese counterpart Wang Li or Wang Yi, Wang Yi yeah. Uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, 
And this was billed as a way for them to, to meet, tamp down the hostilities and the tensions from the balloon incident of earlier that month. And it turned out to be the opposite. It was uh, Blinken was using it as a way to show his domestic audience that we are tough on China and went in there and talked about and warned them about this and warned them about that. And it's it seemed altogether unproductive to me. It's like, why did they bother meeting in the first place? So I I really don't know. um, And I know we've talked about this numerous times before on the show. We don't really know what they're thinking. Uh, because their rhetoric uh, doesn't really match their actions in in real time. And um, it seems to me that there is more discussion today about China's involvement in Ukraine than at any other time in the last year. And this makes me a little nervous because it's almost like they want to conflate the two potential fronts for war. You know, let's get Russia, let's get Russia and China at the same time. And I just think it's a fool's errand. Well, and, and I, it points, I think, to the basic problem with the, the competition framing, the rivalry framing that the China relationship has now been shoved into is in the way that the U.S. approaches the relationship, uh, where it sees any anything that China does as uh, a potential uh, a potential threat or as a potential problem for us and something that we have to counter or something that we have to respond to and so it, it ends up becoming this this kind of pointless contest where we we look for ways to score points against them as a way of showing that we're you know we're winning the competition with china uh, rather than looking for ways that we might have some kind of constructive engagement with them because of course now constructive engagement is uh, considered radioactive and something you're not supposed to do with China anymore, even though, uh, as uh, Ben Jackson has pointed out in this uh, really great book that he wrote uh, just recently, Pacific Power Paradox, U.S.-China detente is one of the basic foundations of peace in East Asia and Southeast Asia over the last 40-plus years. And that that detente is now gone, and we, we don't seem to have any guardrails left in how we deal with the Chinese uh, and every every little incident becomes an occasion for posturing and one-upmanship, and and nothing good can come from that. Yeah, and you know, just uh, in that vein, uh, the House Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party as uh, convening for the first time this week and holding a hearing in which they're featuring former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster uh, testifying about the, the China threat. So as you know, as you say, Dan, there's a lot of posturing going on and Congress wants its piece of it. And that's both Democrats and Republicans. And it, it seems and, and I know we've said this before, that there are very few places where both sides come together in this town, especially today. But on China, there is a bipartisan uh, saber rattling going on at reaching a fever pitch. And if now we have a committee solely designed to showcase uh, members of Congress who want to one up each other on recognizing, pointing out, uh, warning against the threats of China, this, this committee is it for sure. 
guest today is Bonnie Christian. She's a columnist for Christianity Today and a fellow at Defense Priorities. She also writes her own Substack under her, her own name, and her work re- appears regularly in Reason and the Daily Beast as well. Uh, she also wrote a piece for the New York Times on Ron DeSantis and where he fits in the Republican Party's foreign policy debate. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on. Uh, you uh, recently reviewed DeSantis's foreign policy record in a piece that came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, and based on what you found, uh, what do we know about DeSantis's foreign policy views from his time in Congress? Uh, how does he compare to other possible and declared 2024 candidates? You know, it's interesting because I think given that most people know him as, as a governor, there's uh, a l- lack of awareness that he he actually has this pretty extensive foreign policy record. He he served on, you know, relevant committees while he was in Congress and he was there for, if I recall correctly, something like seven years. Um, so a lot of his stuff is, is his record there is pretty standard Republican foreign policy stuff that would fit just as well, you know, in 2004 as it does for potentially the 2024 race. Um, where he, he gets, you know, you get the, the normal support for Israel, um, support for a large defense, uh, department budget, uh, uh, opposition to, to Iran talking about, um, China in, you know, very ideological terms where, you know, we're like sort of, uh, old Cold War language, um, where DeSantis, I think is unique is on a few points. Um, one is that despite having served in Iraq, as a JAG officer, he has a very slim record on uh, uh, the post 9-11 wars. He just he doesn't talk about them a lot. Um, very little commentary there. Uh, and I think some of that is just an artifact of like the timing of his political career. But it's an interesting thing and something that, you know, looking at him in comparison to other potential candidates who have been in the political scene longer, it's a strange silence and something I think we're not familiar or not used to uh, for the past 20 years or so. Um, he's also a little bit distinct from and, and trying to chart something of a middle way, it seems like, on Russia and the war in Ukraine. So he is much more critical of Putin and of the invasion than, for example, Donald Trump. Um, on the other hand, he's definitely not going all in on, you know, we need to support democracy there. What exactly that would mean in policy terms is a little bit unclear at this point. Um, and then he also, I think the third distinction that I pointed to in the, the New York Times piece is he does pay a lot of attention to Iran and to opposing Iran. Um, he talks about them in very absolutist terms, saying, you know, the United States and Iran have no interests in common. Uh, and so uh, for me, at least, it, it seems plausible that he would be moving back towards, um, you know, not just sort of this dysfunctional, like, no active diplomacy relationship that we have with them right now, um, but potentially thinking about military intervention there again. Sure. Well, one thing that he has talked about, I know, in, in some of his TV spots uh, that he that when he was in Congress and and even later uh, is being on record supporting regime change in Iran uh, as well as uh, as we know regime change in Venezuela um uh, to what extent do you think his support for those regime change goals uh was just cheerleading Trump's policies at the time how much was driven by his pandering Florida voters how much was uh driven by other concerns it's hard to say i mean i think Comparing that to his rhetoric on Syria is a good um, a good analogy to make, right? So when 
President Obama was in office, you know, he was very concerned about congressional authority. Can we go into Syria? Can we intervene there if Congress hasn't signed off on it? Uh, and then when Trump came into office and, and did, you know, very similar levels of intervention in Syria as, as Obama considered, suddenly, you know, well, he has the authority. We've got troops nearby. Of course, it doesn't really matter that Congress didn't vote on it. Um, so I think there is a, definitely a degree of, of partisanship there. Um, and combined with that comparative silence on Iraq and Afghanistan, it's just hard to say, uh, you know, does he have strong views on the the wisdom of that kind of regime change project? Is it significantly driven by, you know, partisan alignment? Um, if he potentially becomes the, the leader of the Republican Party, then, you know, it, he's he's less in a space to be sort of following the party crowd in the way that he would have been as a relatively obscure congressman from Florida. Um, so I think that's something of an open question. Sure. Uh, well, speaking of Afghanistan, one of the rare times that he does bring up Afghanistan, uh, he, he mentioned it in the context of his remarks on Ukraine recently, uh, where he was attacking Biden for showing weakness in his first year in office, uh, pointing to the withdrawal from Afghanistan as, as an example of that uh, now that's a, I mean, it's a fairly typical and tired hawkish attack on Biden we're familiar with, but it, it does seem to suggest that DeSantis thinks that some U.S. troop presence should have stayed in Afghanistan, um, possibly indefinitely. Um, what do you make of his uh, reference to Afghanistan in those remarks and, and how that relates to his larger views? I've not seen that recent one, but that has been a consistent theme for him to, to critique how the withdrawal happened. Um, but he also will frequently say, you know, I, I, he'll pair it with, I think we needed to leave. We needed to find a way to wind that down. They quote something to that effect. Um, and so I have not been able to find, or certainly it's possible I've missed it, but I have not been able to find him really elaborating on, okay, so you think the withdrawal went badly. Sure. You wanted to leave. What, what, what would you have done? You know, were you in that position? What would, what would a DeSantis administration withdrawal from Afghanistan have looked like? Would it have been on a different timeline? Would it have been in a different manner? Would there have been that permanent contingent, uh, which, if I recall correctly, Biden was talking about keeping U.S. troops, a, a small group of U.S. troops there long term, like we have in Iraq um, before, you know, everything went to hell in a handbasket. So, um, yeah, I, I, he, he certainly seems to want to say this was bad and something should have been different. But to my knowledge, he has not really explained himself about, you know, what that different thing should have been. I, I totally agree, Bonnie. And thank you for coming on, on the show. I think he's going to have a little bit of a, a quandary and I really don't know how, to, how it will play out. Uh, he did serve in Iraq, I believe as a JAG officer with Navy SEALs or was it special forces? A special forces. Mm, seal sounds right, but I'd have to double. Yeah, check. and yeah. I know, and I and I'm I'm, I'm not trying to spread rumors um, on on our show, but I I think that there's going to be some digging into his record uh, in that regard uh, because of of some of the torture and some of the interrogation practices that had um, gone on, uh, you know, uh, by our troops. Uh, that is all doc well documented. In Iraq, he doesn't talk too much about his his experience in Iraq and or at Gitmo. I understand that he was also stationed there as as a JAG officer. Um, that it, 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 
I, I think that puts him in a situation where if he is trying to appeal to, let's just say, to the Trump um, conservative populist wing and, and, you know, and agree that our war policies for the last 20 years have been largely a failure of Washington elites and then have to explain his role in it, or at least in, in any normal circumstances would want to brag a little bit about his service. I would imagine that there, there might be some, some conflict about which way he would go. Um, and how, how, I guess how that would play into a, um, not only a primary election, but a, a general election. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I would hope that we would be having these conversations about his record and people would be digging into that. The two things that give me pause, though, are one, Trump himself, of course, historically has been quite pro-torture and, you know, explicitly That's saying, true. like, I'm for it. And I, if I recall correctly, there was a thing about, like, Mattis tried to convince him we shouldn't actually torture people. And he sort of, like, grudgingly accepted that, but he still really liked it. Um, and so I don't know that uh, if that's the crowd that DeSantis is trying to appeal to, I, I don't know that that yeah, any, I mean, matter. any record there would be a deal breaker for them. Um, but the thing is, it's still, and I think I noted this in the Times piece, it's like getting into these details of someone's foreign policy is a very pre-Trump thing. And of course, Trump is here with us for another another round in 2024. And so, um, yeah, I... I as much as I think it should happen, I, I don't know that we're going to get any sort of substantive discussion of this sort of thing, because when Trump is in the room, it just makes it all about like policy or personality and style and so little about policy um, and very much tends to, to bring the focus to like, you know, fighting domestic enemies much more than than foreign stuff. And so, yeah, I don't I don't know. It, it, I think it's very possible that some of that old stuff will be dug up but how widely it will be discussed when there's sort of like buzzier personal comments to right. focus on instead. Hard to say. Exactly. And, you know, I hate to keep bringing Trump into this conversation, uh, but, you know, it wasn't too long ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago where Trump pretty much established himself as the conservative restrained candidate comparing himself. I don't know if he did specifically because I don't have it in front of me to Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and calling uh, calling re that Republican wing of the party warmongers and how he was going to come out for for peace in, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, personally, I said, well, this guy really does take the temperature of what's going on outside the beltway on in the base, because I feel I do believe that that's where most Americans are right now. They they want they want peace in Ukraine. They they want uh, they want to turn back foreign policy to more inwardly and to U.S. national interests as opposed to these adventures uh, that have been ongoing over the past twenty years. And maybe Ron DeSantis is you know maybe he's picking up on on some of that. I I know Andrew Coburn had a a column in his well his own Substack recently where he talked about uh, DeSantis appearing on Fox News to denounce the, quote, blank check bestowed on Ukraine. He said, or he's quoting DeSantis as saying, I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into a proxy war 
over things like the borderlands or over Crimea, DeSantis's statement swiftly garnered him a finger wagging from the militarist wing of his party, as represented by the Wall Street Journal editorial page and congressional Republicans. DeSantis, who normally never sees a corporate donation he doesn't like, this is Andrew Coburn writing, clearly understands that the base recoils from foreign wars and will vote accordingly. One might almost call this particular dispute Lockheed versus MAGA. Um, do you think that DeSantis is being pressured uh, to, to be more restrained because Trump, who would be his key rival, has gone, has already announced that he'll be going in that direction on foreign policy? And is this good for, for people like me and Dan on, on, on crashing the war party who would like to see a more restrained foreign policy or at least candidates that, you know, at least pretend to be to espouse it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I'm not super optimistic. I mean, I think look in detail at what DeSantis said, right? He said not a blank check. The check could be any size. It could be bigger than what we're doing right now. Um, like he said, he doesn't want to do a proxy war. I mean, okay, great. But like the, whether the, whether we're in a proxy war right now, what exactly is the tipping point from supplying aid to being in a proxy war? Like that's pretty much debatable and he's not actually giving any specifics here. So is it possible that he's pushing for a more restrained vision? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it's also possible, especially given the rest of his record on foreign policy, that he's he's just being very savvy and saying things that people can can hear what they want to hear in it. Um, but I mean, neither of those are a concrete call to change anything we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Bonnie. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's I think, and we pointed you pointed to this when you were talking about his positioning on Syria, that depending on who happens to be in the White House, uh, his positions can change quite a bit. If mm-hmm. if a Republican president were doing the same things that Biden's doing. Would he say the same things? Probably, almost certainly not. We're, we're pretty. I think we're pretty confident that he would be all in favor of whatever the Republican president is doing. And and I and we see, uh, you see this no blank check argument coming from lots of different people in Congress uh, and mm-hmm. in, uh, in the country, uh, because it's it's a way to distinguish themselves from Biden without actually opposing the policy. And I think you're yeah. you're getting that exactly right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the one thing that DeSantis says regarding foreign policy that it, that has, to, to me, has, has a ring of like a clear substantive position that he, he really cares about is the opposition to China stuff. And he goes pretty hard on this talking about, you know, um, he has lines to the effect of like, I don't see how anyone could look at sort of the state of the world over the last decade and not conclude that like, we need to be countering China, we need to be opposing China. Um and so on that front, especially given some of his like concrete policies that he's trying to do in Florida and the way that he connects it to some of his favorite culture war themes, like that seems to be a real, that focus on China seems to be a real um, solid foreign policy position for him. But beyond that, as you say, it's, it's I think, harder to, you know, you get a, a general gist of things from his record, but I think a lot of it is um, pretty malleable depending on who's in office and also very just strategic in his phrasing like he's he's trying to straddle to be you know appealing to the sort of the new trump MAGA republicans but also not off-putting to that you know 
increasingly less powerful, but still very real contingent of like sort of George W. Bush era Republicans who are, are still around. Sure. And, and on the China question, uh, he, he, he seems to, to think of it primarily in terms of, of an ideological threat more than, than say, an economic or a military one. What were you able to find about his views on the, the U.S. policies in East Asia, uh, specifically related to Taiwan or to China or, or uh, alliances? Yeah, not a whole lot. Most of his his because that wasn't such an issue in when he was in Congress. Um, there's much less from him on that subject. The the more recent stuff is it is the ideological stuff, and it's also stuff about like China um doing surveillance spying meddling manipulation um and that does include some economic angles uh things like you know should they be allowed to to should chinese he always talks about it in terms of like the chinese communist party but i think it means like specific chinese investors and companies be allowed to own property in florida this sort of thing um and uh, so how, what that translates to in terms of like, you know, does he want the U.S. Navy doing more sail throughs of the, the Taiwan Straits? I, I, I don't think he's gotten into that kind of detail yet. So moving beyond Ron DeSantis, what are your thoughts about the Republican primary in general? I mean, I know people will say that Americans don't go to polls with foreign policy at the top of their minds uh, but given that this this program and, you know, what we do for a living, we focus on this. It's very important to me. Are we going to see some diversity in a sense on on the stage in terms of how Republicans are approaching foreign policy, maybe more so than you would have seen in earlier times uh, before Trump? Um, or does, or when it comes down to it, are we going to see uh, a bunch of cookie cutter uh, Pompeo types of, of people trying to, to, you know, chest thump their chests and say how how tough they are on Russia and China? Like, will it, it become a set of caricatures? <laughs> <laughs> I think there will be diversity, but not necessarily on a, like a war to peace spectrum, as opposed to like a who should we attack <laughs> or, or who should yeah. we be focused on spectrum right so i think in people like pence and nikki haley you have more of that old school like um neocon flavor where there's uh there's that interest in interventionism that has sort of like the we're upholding democracy tinge to it right um there's going to be less of a, a repudiation of like the post 9-11 era from those guys uh, and then from sort of the newer crowd and then Trump is there. And I would, I would say Pompeo is kind of there too. Um, and, and, um, DeSantis is sort of trying to straddle the two, but from in this new crowd, it's going to be much more focused on China, especially in these ideological terms. Um, a little bit more willingness to like condemn the post 9-11 stuff. Um, but if you think about, okay, so you're willing to condemn the post 9-11 stuff, a lot of that stuff is, significantly wound down at this point. Right. And so I don't like a, a Trump who is in office from 2016 to 2020 and talking about like, let's get out of Afghanistan um, on that front. And obviously he failed to do it, but on that front uh, he's at least uh, in rhetoric, you know, somewhat more aligned with people who want to be more restrained, people who want to intervene less. But if you have a Trump who's in office from 2024 to 2028, 
well, you know, he he's all about like the opposition to China and confronting them. And so because there's no there's no core, like there's no underlying anti-war or restrained principle underneath there, given the different set of challenges, I I don't know that that makes them it's it, there's a difference, but it's not a, it's not a movement towards peace, despite what like, you know, some campaign operatives are trying to claim. Um, and so, yeah, I think there will be disagreement, but whether either side winning is a victory for restraint is seems unlikely to me. Yeah. And I think the biggest difference that I'm sensing now uh, from the more populist crowd is they're more willing to uh, criticize, be skeptical of Washington, particularly mm-hmm. Washington elites and cast out as to whether the, uh, the white house, the military, uh, the State Department, all of the attending agencies are actually working in the best interests of the United States or the American people. And and so that, I think that is the difference. I agree with you. I don't see. But does it make a difference in funding right. for state? Yes, they're going to they're always happy to cut the diplomats. Right? right. But when it comes to the Pentagon, both factions are equally willing to throw more cash at it. So, yeah, no, I, I it's not like one side is militarist and one side is anti-militarist. The difference is that like on the new side, you have like this more naked aggression. And then on the old side, it's that with like a, cause we love democracy draped over top. Yeah. Um, but in practice, is it so different? Yeah. I guess, I guess it remains to be seen. There is, seems to be a lot of talk about cutting the defense budget now, some of it is like the devil's mm-hmm. details. Like, we want to cut it. And they'll say, we want to cut the wokeness out of the, right. of the military. Yeah. And there, there seems to be some thought into the idea that we're, there, there have been failed and bloated programs that are keeping them from spending money on other things that they think will get us more prepared for a war with China. <laughs> but it is, it's a different conversation. I don't know if it yeah. necessarily gets us to the restraint place that we'd we'd like to be. <laughs> but I, I do yeah. see different gradations and I agree with you. There's a diversity and I guess the approach, but I don't know in the in the end game if if they're all that different. So it'll be interesting. I hope you come back on the show uh, during campaign season and, and maybe <laughs> suss out some of the different dynamics that are happening. I really in, enjoy your 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 insights on that. Um, can you tell us where uh, our listeners can find your work? Is there a place where they can go? They want to read more about what you're doing? Sure. Um, well, Daniel already mentioned my Substack, which is just bonniechristian.substack.com. Um, and since I do write for a number of outlets right now, that's probably like the the one place where each week I'm, you know, reliably tallying up what I've written and, and sending that in a unified list. Um, but I also write a, a, a particular interest here. I write the um, newsletter that goes out on Tuesdays from Defense Priorities, um, which is sort of like a roundup of new news and analysis and research and in foreign policy spaces. And you can find that at defensepriorities.org. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, 
the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>